Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 29th episode of our podcast, I interviewed David Friend, who is CEO and co-founder of Wasabi. Before I give you a summary of our discussion, I first need to play you a quick sound clip. So why did I just play the opening to Baba O'Reilly by The Who? Well, that legendary sound was created by David's first company called ARP Instruments, a music synthesizer company which provided technology to The Who, Led Zeppelin, Stevie Wonder, The Beach Boys, and many others. That company was ultimately sold to CBS. And as you'll find out, exits are a common theme throughout our discussion. David and his business partner, Jeff Flowers, have started five companies together, all of which have been either acquired or in the case of Carbonite, that company went public in 2011 and it currently has a market cap of over $1 billion. The duo's current company, Wasabi, is taking on the cloud storage giants like Amazon, Google, and Microsoft by offering faster storage at a fraction of the price. In this episode, we cover lots of topics, like David's entrepreneurial journey through many successful companies, the details on Wasabi and why they aren't afraid to compete against the giants, Wasabi's involvement with Spacebelt, which is data storage in a global area network in space, why he keeps building companies, plus the secret to staying young. Okay, quick side note, if you haven't left us a review yet, I need your help. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Google Play. It makes a huge difference in terms of having other people discover and listen to this podcast, and we really need to get these great Boston success stories out to the masses. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with David. David, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, pleasure. All right, so I always like to start these conversations off with just this hidden gem that I found as I was doing some preliminary research for this podcast. What does the song... Baba O'Reilly from The Who remind you of? Well, it reminds me of the ARP 2500 synthesizer that made those sounds. <laughs> Which is what? Like, Which what is that? I was part of the team that designed uh, back in, I don't know, 1971, something like that. At my uh, first company right out of college, we uh, made synthesizers for rock bands. And I had an undergraduate degree in music from Yale and went to grad school in engineering uh, because I realized I would never make a living in music <laughs> and making synthesizers seemed like a good way. It was, you know, very much on the forefront of uh, music technology at that time. And it seemed like a good thing to do. And then I discovered that, uh, you know, if you wanted to sell a lot of synthesizers to high school rock bands, you needed to get the stars using your equipment because the high school rock bands all bought what, you know, Pete Townsend or Jimmy Page or, Stevie Wonder or whoever uh, was playing. And so I said, somebody around here needs to go out and get some artist endorsements. And since I was the least geeky of the people at, <laughs> around the table, uh, I was elected. So I spent, you know, probably most of my 10 years at ARP chasing artists for endorsements. And we this have is, a lot of them. Uh, yeah, like obviously the who. So when you hear that sound, that must just be like, yep, that was us. And this yeah, is probably you found I, it. I remember uh, visiting Pete Townsend in his studio in Twickenham outside of London. And right. I'm sitting there waiting for him to come out. And I'm leafing through a bunch of magazines sitting on his <laughs> coffee table. And I'm reading one magazine. I open up and there's a, a check in there for $150,000. <laughs> I said, when he finally came out, I said, Pete, I found this check in this magazine. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit, that's a royalty check 
I've been, I was wondering where that went <laughs> there for like four months, <laughs> a lot of money back in 1972. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and, the, and this was like, you know, Led Zeppelin, Beach Boys, Stevie Wonder, like all oh, like big, yeah, big artists. Fact, uh, I just uh, saw Jimmy Page at a uh, Berkeley College of Music event a couple of months ago. We had a good laugh over some old times. He still has, he, he came out to visit me in Needham. Uh, when when he was uh, going through Boston on tour, and uh, he still has the same shirt. I have a picture of him with my wife in our house out in Needham, and he, he still has said he still, still has the same shirt that he wore back then. This sort of flowery, you know, flower power era clothing. Yeah, yeah it's funny. It's fun to keep up with some of those people. Some of them have have done well. Townsend is almost deaf now because uh, he has to wear hearing aids because you know just all those years of high intensity sound and it's uh, kind of crazy. I, I love it when I see musicians wearing earplugs because they'll feel good about that at some point. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess this is a good segue because this was the first company you you helped as a founder. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where'd you grow up before that? Where'd you go to college? You know, before you know, because you never really had a like a, a full time job coming out of school. You had an internship, I believe, at one point, but that's it, right? Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in New Rochelle, which is a suburb of New York, right outside New York. And I was a science fair kid, you know, and used to spend my weekends rooting around junk shops down on Canal Street, in New York City, looking for, you know, things for my various science projects. And, uh, you know, I was always a musician. And uh, what'd you play? Uh, keyboards, um, you know, I studied classical piano all throughout my childhood mm -hmm. and, um, you know, when it came time for college, um, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to get into Yale, which was perfect for me because, uh, they have a fantastic music department there. I mean, they have a conservatory that's much like Juilliard in addition to being, you know, just a really great liberal arts college. And, uh, I graduated with a dual degree in engineering and music composition and uh, having determined that I was never going to make a living as a second-rate composer um, I decided to go back to grad school in engineering and I went to Princeton and at Princeton I um, got a, a fellowship from RCA and they RCA had a big research lab out on route one just outside of Princeton and uh, I worked for this really fantastic inventor there a guy named Harry Olson who when I was working for him, he had 180 patents in, you know, the little RCA connectors that you have on the back of every VCR and everything. Yeah. He invented those among a lot of other things. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> Very cool. It was fun. I mean, it was, you go in there and there's all these half taken apart inventions, you know, sitting on the bench, on the workbenches, and they pretty much let me build whatever I wanted. And so I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, just fooling around with electronic musical circuits. And, uh, you know, that's where the idea came for moving up to Boston and starting a synthesizer company that actually became a really big deal during the 70s. So I, so that was a Boston company and it, and it was ultimately acquired, right? Yeah, they, we sold the company to CBS Musical Instruments, which was on a tear in the late 70s, buying up Steinway and Fender and a whole bunch of other brands. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you started your next company, which is a common theme of this conversation. So Computer Pictures Corporation was the next one, right? Yeah. 
So when I was at uh, when I was running uh, ARP, uh, you know, the music business is uh, a trend business, right? And if you want to sign up a a major artist for an endorsement, it's better to find them before they get really famous than it is after they get really famous. And uh, so I had developed this piece of software that actually ran on an Apple II uh, that allowed me to sort of visualize in graphic form uh, record sale trends in the industry. And the idea was to, you know, try to predict who was going to be the next big artist or who, which groups of bands were going to be the next big ones. Try to go out and get an artist endorsement agreement from them before they got so big and famous that, uh, you know, they, you'd never get through all their managers and gatekeepers and everything. And I, I was showing that software back when I was still running ARP. I showed that software to a local VC, and uh, he wasn't interested in our in our synthesizer business, but he was extremely interested in this software, which I was calling TrendSpotter. And uh, he said, "Why don't you get out of this crazy synthesizer business, and I'll give you a million dollars of seed capital to commercialize this software that you've developed." <laughs> And I thought that was not a good idea at the time, but, you know, within about six months, long story made short, his uh, synthesizer company had been sold to CBS, and I had launched a company called Computer Pictures with this VC's money. And that company went on to be fairly successful, um, and after probably about three years, I think we sold it to Cullinet, which was a, a large public software company down in Westwood. Mm -hmm. now part of oracle mm -hmm. and at what point did you meet jeff flowers who is your co-founder that the next phase of companies we're going to talk about has been your co-founder each step of the way right yeah so i met jeff right at the beginning of computer pictures okay um you know um jeff and mark reese who's also still here at wasabi after all these different companies um had worked some magic at prime computer out in natick mm -hmm. prime was a big mini computer manufacturer back then kind of a big deal in the boston tech scene and uh, they had a, a database product called midas plus which was a disaster um you know they had customers suing them their stock was getting hit and uh, the engineering department at prime I, I had said publicly that it was going to take two and a half to three years to fix these problems and jeff apparently convinced somebody to allow him mark and a few other people to go off and they rented a little white house in south natick and in six months they completely rewrote this product and it was perfect and uh i read about this it was a front page story in the boston globe and I said, I got to meet this guy. You know, this is just <laughs> an amazing story. Right. So I called him up and, and uh, you know, I expected, you know, that he was going to be like a hero out there and everything else. And instead he said he had been blackballed by the engineering department because they had made them look so bad. And that, you know, he had sort of been forced to decamp to the marketing department and he was very unhappy. And uh, so I said, well, why don't you, uh, you know, I'm doing a startup. Why don't you come join me? And so I think literally the next day he quit <laughs> and uh, helped me uh, get computer pictures off the ground. Got it. Okay, so at that time, his first act as C CTO was to ban me from the keyboard. So <laughs> that, was, that was the end of my code writing. Uh, <laughs> 
which once again led to another acquisition, right? Computer Pictures was acquired. Yeah, Computer Pictures got acquired by Cullinet, and then all the things we learned at uh, Computer Picture, Computer Pictures about uh, data visualization, mm-hmm. we took to the next company, which was called Pilot Software. Right. And um, you know, Pilot Software uh, made uh, the underpinnings was what's called a multi-dimensional database that allowed large organizations like Sears and J.C. Penney and Burger King and people like that to slice and dice retail data in ways that they'd never been able to do before. So this was a sort of a blindingly fast multi-dimensional database with uh, data visualization tools, meaning charts and graphs and things like that on the front end. And uh, it was quite a successful company. And we sold that to Dun and Bradstreet um, in the sort of mid nineties. And then from there, let's let's well, keep keep rolling. So FaxNet after that. So this is funny, is... But, but you know, I mean, the curse of being an engineer, or at least my kind of engineer, is you can't look at anything without seeing ways that it could be done better. Right. And it's very annoying because you just live in this world of constant uh, irritation. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that had been bugging me when I was uh, running uh, pilot software was the process of sending faxes. And I know everybody's completely forgotten about faxes, but in the mid-90s, there were 120 million fax machines in operation in the United States. And if I wanted to send you a letter, I would do it on my word processor, I would print it, and then I would run the letter through the fax machine, and what you got on your end looked pretty awful. I remember it well, yep. It was barely legible. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there saying why this is such a stupid thing i'm taking a letter that start is it starts in electronic form turning it into paper and then turning it back into electronic form <laughs> with huge degradation of the image quality in the process and that great noise yeah why can't i just print to the facts and so we created a company called faxnet that did that and we had a whole bunch of products that basically sat in that world halfway between the email world and the and the fax world. So I could send a fax from my PC just by just like printing to my printer. I just had a print driver that sent the fax over the internet to a big data center that we had out in Denver. And that would pick up a phone line and send the fax with very high quality. Hmm. And then we did the other side too, which was uh, instead of having a separate phone line that you're paying 40 bucks a month to, you know, to Verizon for, mm-hmm. we offered a phone number that was yours. Somebody sends a fax to that phone number. The fax gets turned into an email and sent to you as an attachment. Now, you know, lots of people do that today, but that was kind of novel back then. And the company grew very fast. It was very successful, uh, very loyal customers. And uh, I think less than five years after we started that company, we sold it for like $250 million. And, uh, you know, the investors made a lot of money and I got a, a uh, created a lot of loyal friends uh, among the sort of angel community in Boston. Well, at that point, after having these multiple successes, including that one, you probably had like the blank check type of yeah. authority where investors like just back David, whatever idea. <laughs> like, you know, you would think so, but I, it, it's never been that easy, at least not with the venture capital community. And I can't remember how many rounds of venture capital I've raised for all my businesses, but it, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. 
So then after that, um, you know, Jeff and I were sitting around in his patio up in Marblehead trying to think about what to do next. And my daughter calls from New York. She's in college and uh, she has a term paper due on Friday and the hard drive in her laptop just died mm-hmm. and she lost her term paper. So I go racing down to New York and uh, we take her hard drive out and give it to one of these labs that charges you a lot of money to try to recover data from a dead hard drive. Mm-hmm. And I paid them 1300 bucks and they still couldn't get her term paper back. And then I think literally the same week, uh, Jeff Flowers, his wife, had her car broken into and somebody stole her laptop and she lost all kinds of stuff that was on there. And both my daughter and Jeff's wife had external hard drives that they were supposed to be using to back up their computers, but of course they never did. Mm -hmm. And Jeff and I are looking at each other and Jeff says, you know, he says, this is really stupid. He says, everybody's connected to the internet all the time nowadays. Why isn't there some way to just have, you know, in the background, just have anything you've got on your computer copying itself up to a cloud somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning of Carbonite. And, uh, you know, when we introduced Carbonite, uh, we had some big entrenched competitors or big companies that were entrenched competitors, EMC, Iron Mountain, and HP among them. And um, everybody at that time was charging for cloud storage by the gigabyte. You know, if you want five, it's X price. If you want 10, it's another price. And we started talking to people and they said, we hate that because we don't even know how much we're going to store. And I'm always getting nickel and dimed. Mm -hmm. So Jeff says, you know what? I have an idea for how we can do cloud storage cheaper and sort of a lot of work to make it, but let's try it. And we did. And it allowed us to come out with the first unlimited backup offer. So you could say for $59 a year, will back up as much as you've got on your PC. And it was a very large, you know, so we had customers that abused it. You know, maybe we lost money probably on 1% of our customers that right. had terabytes of data that they wanted to back up for just 59 bucks. Right. But the, the user experience, it was so simple that it, it just took off. And we also, I adopted a, a, a strategy of raising a lot of money and building a brand because when it comes to backup, people are like, who the heck is Carbonite? And why should I trust you guys with my data? Right. And, you know, so consumers. Yeah. So I said, we, we need to build a brand that's trustworthy. So we, we were the first backup company to start doing TV ads and radio. And, you know, we had talk radio people, um, you know, who Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern and, you know, which that was a novel customer acquisition strategy that companies wouldn't think of. Like, let's go to the talk radio folks. Well, like, why do you, why did you decide that? And it, it ended up yielding tremendous success, right? It was hugely successful. And the re the reason we went for it was because we realized that nobody was going to give us their precious data unless they trusted us. Mm-hmm. And so we said, who do, who we, at first we were thinking, well, maybe we can hire some movie actor or somebody like that to shill for our product. And we said, no, that's not going to work. These people aren't credible and as as spokespersons and then we hit on the idea of talk radio and every one of these talk radio hosts has a loyal following who think they these radio hosts walk on water Mm -hmm. and you know some of them were right-wing conservative types of talk show hosts others were kind of liberal left-wing like rachel maddow you know on the left and rush limbaugh on the right 
you know, Mark Levine on the right, and more on the right than on the left. I think they, they had more loyal followings who were less skeptical and more follow more followers than leaders. But it worked really great. And the minute we started this program, it just, you know, Carbonite just took off. And today Carbonite's, you know, worth over a billion dollars and um, and is public and has 1,500 employees or something like that. And HP, EMC, and Iron Mountain, who were all telling their customers back then, there's no way Carbonite can do what they're doing at that price. Don't worry, they'll be out of business in two years. Mm-hmm. Within four years, all three of those guys had been kind of forced out of the business. Right. So um, I, I'm not afraid of competing with big companies in, in sort of commoditized markets. Mm-hmm. In fact, I like it because the biggest problem for startups is will the dog eat the dog food? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if I'm coming out with something that's completely new and radical that the world has never seen before, who knows whether anybody's going to like it? You know, it's right. like coming out with a movie. Sometimes the, the strangest movies become hits and sometimes the most obvious, obvious ones flop. Um, but if you're in a market where there's already a big market, like Wasabi now is competing in cloud storage, well, geez, you know, Amazon's already got billions of dollars worth of cloud storage. And if you can do it cheaper and faster, um, you know, you don't have to worry about whether there's a market for your product. So, you know, where we are right now in Wasabi, we're kind of like somebody who figured out how to make sheet steel for 50% less, you know? Mm -hmm. Hey, do I want to buy this sheet steel or that sheet steel? Well, they're both the same. In fact, this one over here is even better and it's half the price. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very, it makes it very easy to sell. So that's where we are now after Carbonite, Carbonite's public. And, you know, I, I left as CEO two or three years ago and, but that was the first company you took public. So what was that like as far as getting to the point of, you know, going, you know, for the IPO and, and that whole experience? Well, it's fun to do once because it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not something I personally would want to do again because, uh, you know, it's a little bit dispiriting for the inventor, the entrepreneur, um, because when you're out selling your company, uh, you're basically selling stock. You know, and it doesn't matter whether the, almost doesn't matter what the product is. You're just, mm-hmm. you're, you're a financial instrument to be traded. And it's, um, you know, it's a necessary part of, of being in business. Um, but I think if I were to take Wasabi public, I would probably bring in a new CEO to do that as opposed to doing it myself, because it's a lot of sitting on airplanes and driving around in black cars and you know, endless investor meetings and so forth. And it's just not on a personal level. I'm glad I did it once and it was interesting. Um, but I, I think I get the general idea and I have more interesting things to do with my time. Wasabi is at the most interesting phase of a company's growth from my view. I mean, we're, we, we grow in a week what a lot of companies would be happy to grow in a year. Mm-hmm. And that's just thrilling. You know, I mean, it's just to be in the midst of that when you're creating something from nothing um three or four years from now this business will be much more operationally intensive um and uh you know the opportunity to innovate and create something out of nothing will start to diminish a little bit and uh you know so that will will be a different dynamic um we have a really deep management team here with a people who have a lot of experience in operational stuff. And, you know, even today with, uh, 
the amount of storage that we're running is operationally complex. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll be much, much more complicated a couple of years from now. So we're adding about a petabyte every two weeks right now. By Q1, we'll be adding a petabyte a day. Wow. So, you know, I mean, that's just a lot of gear to move around, a lot of networking, a lot of testing, mm-hmm. uh, real estate, you know, I mean, it's all these kinds of things. And just to boil it down for our listeners who aren't familiar with Wasabi, you're basically taking on Amazon Web Services, Google, Microsoft, and, you know, cloud storage, right? Is that the best way to explain it? Yeah. So, you know, I tell people, they say, who is your competition? I say, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. (laughs) Don't let the door be on the way out. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you know what Amazon S3 is, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, their sort of premier cloud storage product, uh, we built Wasabi to be exactly the same, 100% compatible with Amazon S3, only we're one-fifth the price and six times faster. Wow. So it's a very compelling sales proposition. Mm-hmm. And people who are writing checks to Amazon for a million bucks to store their data can store that same amount of data in Wasabi for $200,000 mm-hmm. uh, and have a, a far, far faster. And in fact, all of the speed tests that we publish are all done in EC2, in Amazon's own compute. So what we're saying is you can get data out of Wasabi into EC2 six times faster than you can get it out of Amazon's own S3 storage sitting right there. So it's, uh, you know, it's a very compelling proposition. And this is really complicated technology because to do this, we can't use operating systems like Linux and Windows to determine how the bits are put on disk. We actually have to get right down there and grab hold of the heads on the disk drives and put the bits on disk where we want them to go, not where some operating system wants them to go. So if you're writing a storage product sitting on top of Linux or something like that, you're never going to be able to do what we do. Mm-hmm. You'll never get the speed. You'll never get the the uh, efficiency, the storage efficiencies. Well, I remember when we chatted about a year ago when you were just coming, like announcing the company and the name. You mentioned the key benefit of Wasabi and how you've had the the luxury of this increased performance was you were able to start fresh and new with you know a new architecture versus Amazon Web Services has actually been around for a while now, right? So there's yeah. legacy technology there. 2005, so that product is 12 years old. Yeah, uh, almost 13 years old, and um, you know, I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages to being big. Um, you know, the disadvantage of being big is you now have this huge, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure that's built on this old technology. How the heck do you change to the next generation? Right. And so, you know, I, I kind of like competing directly against big companies. I always have. And um, because you, you can, it, size can work for you and it can work against you. And if you, if you really think through the business practices, like people will come up to me and they'll say, well, why won't Amazon just drop their price and put you guys out of business? Mm-hmm. And I say, well, can you imagine walking into the CFO's office at Amazon where they probably have six or $7 billion worth of storage business and say, I recommend that we drop our price by 80% <laughs> and, and erase $5 billion from the bottom line because this little company in Boston is running annoying advertisements. <laughs> 
And, you know, and when you think about it, there are lots of examples uh, of companies that have followed a similar strategy and been extremely successful. I mean, EMC right out here in Hopkinton, you know, came out with IBM compatible disk drives. And Mm -hmm. they would say, here's the IBM disk drive. Here's the EMC disk drive. They work exactly the same. Unplug theirs, plug in ours and save 30%. So why would you buy the IBM one when ours is exactly the same and costs less? Yeah. And, you know, MCI did that to AT&T. I mean, how many VCs would have invested in, in, in a company that was going to compete with AT&T that had 90% of the U S long distance market, you know, right. But they had a new disruptive technology and it took AT&T 11 years before they finally threw in the towel and dropped their prices to compete with all of these new alternative carriers. And meanwhile, their market share went from 90% to 40%. Mm-hmm. And they eventually ended up selling out to, you know, one of the baby bells, ignominious ending for one of America's greatest companies. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of examples of companies that have done this. Nucor did it to U.S. Steel. You know, they came out with these electric arc furnaces in the 60s. And uh, they were able to pl- manufacture plain old sheet steel and girders and stuff like that for less than U.S. steel with their big hulking steel plants down in Pittsburgh. And today, U.S. steel has been de- U.S. steel was the largest corporation in the world when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And today they've been delisted because their market cap is so low. And Nucor is the largest steel company in the United States. So, mm-hmm. I mean, these kind there's all these kinds of stories happen all the time. And just being big is no guarantee that you're going to be able to hold on to that lead forever. Very true. Very true. Now, what's you touched upon this a little bit already, but what bring us up to date on Wasabi as far as where the business is at and traction? Yeah. So we have, uh, I don't know, 2,200 paying customers today. Wow. And, uh, you know, up from zero 11 months ago. Mm-hmm. And um, we have about 4,000 companies doing trials right now. Um, storage is growing five to 10% every week. Uh, so we're just rolling in equipment kind of as fast as we can. We have two data centers now in the U S we have the first one, which was down in Ashburn, Virginia. We have our second data center in Portland, Oregon. And, um, you know, very soon we'll be starting to offer automatic geographic replication between those two sites. So that, you know, if you want to have your data on two different tectonic plates, as I've learned in the industry. That's what people think about. Um, you can do that. The customers are the kinds of people you would expect uh, who have huge data storage problems. So TV, uh, TV companies, you know, uh, movie production companies, a typical feature length film today ends up with 10 to 12 petabytes of storage, which is mind boggling. So, you know, and they keep everything forever. So um, surveillance, you know, there's close to 300 million surveillance cameras in operation around the world. And every time you turn around, they're increasing the resolution and they want to keep the data for longer periods of time because they're doing a lot of AI stuff with facial recognition and things of that sort. So they need a lot of, uh, a lot of data to grind through. Uh, Genomics, which... You know, the amount of data in the genomics business is said to be doubling every seven months right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got, you know, telescopes, 
nuclear colliders, you know, you name it. There's all these things that just throw off huge amounts of data and people have trouble figuring out how the heck am I going to afford to, to store all this stuff. Um, we're working with a municipality that just bought body cams for all their cops uh, a, few, a, a year ago. And now that, now that they have them all, they're it's discovering that they can't afford to keep the data for more than a couple of weeks mm -hmm. because the storage costs are so high. And, you know, sometimes they, these cases don't even, you know, people don't even discover there's been a crime until months later. Mm -hmm. And then they don't come to trial for sometimes years later. And meanwhile, you know, they've erased all the video. So, um, so there, there's just, you know, I figured uh, there was an IDC report that came out that said by 2025, there will be 160, I think it was 163 zettabytes of stored data in the world. <laughs> a zettabyte is a million petabytes and a petabyte is a million gigabytes. So a lot of zeros. <laughs> and I figured that Wasabi's price of, you know, roughly 0.5 cents per gigabyte per month, which is about a fifth of Amazon's price. Even at our price, that would be $9.7 trillion of revenue if all of that data were stored in Wasabi, which of course it's not going to be, but right. we don't need it to be either. So it's just, you know, it's an enormous market. Cloud storage is, I hope, going to just become a commodity. I mean, our vision is that nobody should be in the storage business anymore. I mean, you know, if you're a, a hospital or a bank or a movie studio, storage is not core to what you do. It mm -hmm. should be like electricity or bandwidth. It's something you buy from somebody else who does it really well. And it should be fast, cheap, and ubiquitous. And so that that's our vision. So people say, well, it's a commodity market. Good. You know, that's what it should be. Because in a commodity market, the guy who can make the best performing product at the lowest price always wins because the customers find you. You don't have to go out and market it so heavily. Mm -hmm. And what's Space Belt all about? Very cool project. So uh, <laughs> there are a lot of military and financial applications where people need to, such as the the SWIFT banking system, you know, that does transfers large amounts of money inter interbank um, that are very paranoid about having their communications intercepted. And Space Belt is um, partly about communications and partly about storage of small amounts of very critical information. But let's say that... Um, you know, you're a bank here and you want to transfer a whole bunch of money to a bank in Taiwan. Um, with Space Belt, that signal will go up to a satellite, get relayed around the world by laser connecting the satellites because lasers are, are kind of, you can't intercept the beam and, and pick off the data and then directly back down. And so you can go point to point without ever touching one foot of public internet or even to any terrestrial cables or anything like that, because right. even a, even dedicated fiber, you know, somebody can tap it right. and get in there. So this is a highly secure, uh, highly secure method of communication and temporary data storage in the cloud. 
So our part in this is basically the terrestrial storage part. So there will be, um, when this project gets off the ground, so to speak, um, there will be a Wasabi data center as part of this network that will be completely isolated from any ground-based terrestrial communications. There'll be a satellite dish on the roof that will talk to one of the satellites. And so data storage will be available to anybody on, on, um, on these guys' network, but it will be available completely isolated from any, any internet or anything of that sort. So it's, you know, I think the applications will be uh, military. Mm -hmm. um, they will be very critical kind of banking applications and, and national security kinds of applications. You know, I don't, I mean, we're, we're very pleased that they chose us as the ground component mm -hmm. of this because you can't store all of the data in the satellites. Right. So at some point, you know, the data comes to rest, but you don't want to sacrifice the security of it. What's been the key to your success? You've built so many companies in different areas of technology or use case. So like, how, how do you keep coming up with these ideas that end up being companies at scale? Um, so, uh, you know, I couldn't have done it without Jeff, my partner, mm -hmm. and, and he couldn't have done it without me. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think, the, you know, that's we were both very fortunate to sort of find each other and, and be partners for this entire uh, close to 40 years now that we've been working together. Um, so, you know, we always have a long, Jeff and I always have a long list of ideas that are percolating in the background. And uh, I've tried to retire two or three times and Jeff keeps coming back to me saying, wait a minute, what about this idea? We got one more. <laughs> well, that was the second question. I'm like, why do you keep doing this? You've had so much success. And I, so I, uh, TJ Mahoney's a venture capitalist at Accomplice and he, loves to invest into entrepreneurs who have what he calls, quote unquote, a disease, meaning they need to fix this problem and they think they can take on the Goliaths, the Amazons and be the best out there, right? So like you're an engineer at heart and you see these problems that need to get fixed. So you feel like just compelled to start these companies or like, what is it that you just keep doing this over and over? I don't know. I mean, if you go back to my sort of music training, um, starting a company is a lot like composing a piece of music. You're starting with a blank page and you start putting notes down. And, you know, after some period of time, you have a, hopefully a beautiful piece of music. And when you start a company like Wasabi, you literally are starting with a blank page. It's just you and your partner sitting across the dining room table with a napkin. And to, to then a year later, see 2000 companies storing data in your cloud is just an awesome feeling. I mean, yeah. it's just like, whoa, you know, we, this is this mm. is really fun, and uh, and it's fun to to be able to see really talented people grow up inside your organization and then go on to become CEOs of their own company someday. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of good aspects to it, and yeah. you know, you you get you 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 do end up with a lot of money if they're successful. But, you know, I think when we sold, when, when Carbonite went public, I went out and bought a new racing bike. That was the... You did? <laughs> I upgraded my track, you know, but I don't need anything more, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I do it because it's just fun and exciting. And I, I have a 98-year-old friend 
who uh, who I go on rock collecting trips with. And I asked him once, I said, what's the secret to being 98 and still being so alive? Mm -hmm, and he says, mm -hmm. something to do, someone to love, and something to look forward to. And, you know, and I said, wow, you know, I've got all three of those things. And if I stop doing what I'm doing, you know, I, I won't. Yeah. And, you know, also down at the Cape, my uh, next door neighbor is an MIT professor named Noam Chomsky, who's a well-known uh, well-known academic and uh he's in his 80s and uh you know every time i talk to him he's in dubai giving a speech or in china or india and stuff and he says life is like a bicycle if you stop pedaling you fall over so i keep pedaling <laughs> that's i agree you gotta stay active you gotta keep the mind active too because otherwise that if you stop using your your brain and thinking that goes to mush pretty quickly Yep. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who are retired and I don't think I would trade places with any of them. Mm -hmm. Well, just one question about, you know, you've raised a ton of venture capital. What, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs that are out there trying to raise venture capital? Uh, boy, that's tough because, uh, there are a number of ways to raise money other than venture capital these days. There okay. And uh, I have to say that my, uh, my experience with venture capitalists has been a mixed bag. I've had a couple of really good, helpful people, mm -hmm. and I've had a couple of really bad experiences. And, uh, you know, even at Carbonite, we had a, a very good VC who was invested in us for reasons that had nothing to do with the company, we tried to force the company's sale. Mm. And this was when the stock was at $12 a share and today it's 30, $38 a share. So that would have been a disastrous call, mm -hmm. but they have their own businesses to run. And, uh, and sometimes their interests don't align with the interests of the management team or the mm -hmm. company. And, uh, so you just have to make sure you have your eyes open when you go into the relationship. Uh, keeping in mind that while everything is a love fest, when your interests are aligned, it's kind of inevitable that at some point your interests may not be aligned. Right. And uh, just bear that in mind. Wasabi to date is funded almost entirely from individuals and uh, family offices and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mostly people who have made money as angel investors in our previous companies. Right. And, you know, not everybody can do that, but um, um, I enjoy that because, uh, you know, at this stage in my life, I don't need adult supervision. And, uh, you know, I know what I'm doing better than probably most people do. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm not at this point in time seeking investment from the VC community. Yeah. So what else do you like to do? Spend time at the Cape, you said. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I like active sports. So, you know, I'm, um, fidgety person, so I need to work off energy. So I hike, I rock climb, I windsurf, I run, I bike, I skull on the river. Nice. Um, so, you know, a whole bunch of things, but mostly energetic kind of things that leave me exhausted when I'm done. <laughs> so I can go to sleep. <laughs> And it gets harder and harder. I mean, one of the things about getting older is 
you know, if you're sort of a compulsive athlete where you, you've run marathons and you, you know, you have one of these things on your wrist that measures your heart rate and all that kind of stuff is quantitatively, you can just see the deterioration every year. And it's really, <laughs> <shocking>. <laughs> there's no amount of training that's going to reverse that. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, I can relate. I'm, I can relate. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just getting used to that. You know, it's just, <laughs> having never had a midlife crisis. This is now, you know, a new thing I have to get adjusted. <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for your time and for sharing, you know, the background story of all these companies and the, the fun side stories, as well as all the great words of wisdom. Appreciate your time. Sure. Pleasure. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.